0: Thanks so much for listening to the City Church podcast. We pray that this message draws you closer to the heart of Jesus and impacts your daily life. For more resources, check out ourcitychurch.org. doing incredible stuff. We love to be able to communicate to our church at the same time in different places. It's amazing what God can uh, provide through the incredible technology that is available today. And so we're excited about that. Second Corinthians chapter 9, have you arrived yet? Are you there? Okay, you're like, dude, I'm just going to look at the screen. I'm not even going to go, so what does it matter? Fine, then uh, I'm going to change the words and you're never going to know. So... There you go. All right, now I'm just kidding. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. Here we go. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves an angry, get, no, I'm just kidding, I just make sure, a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every, every, every good work. Every good work. If you want to take some notes, the title of today's sermon is The Rules of a New World. The Rules of a New World. The Rules of a New World. Let's pray. God, we open our hearts to you, and we open our hearts to your word. I thank you for the person that maybe it's their first time in Middletown, their first time here in New Haven. God, I pray that in Jesus' name that you would speak to them in a personal way. Jesus, I pray for the person who gave their life to you just last month. I pray in Jesus' name that the power of God's Holy Spirit ...would minister today. And I pray for the individual that's been following you for a long time. Today is a day of breakthrough. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. A while back, some friends of ours who have older kids than we do... Uh, some friends of ours gave us a few audio CDs for the car. And if you're like us and you have kids, I have three kids. My oldest is nine, my middle son is seven, and then my youngest is two and a half. Uh, you know that car rides, especially long car rides, can be challenging. Can any parents say amen? Right? And you have to figure out some way to entertain the children for extended periods of time. And so we were given a number of different uh, audio CDs. And one of the ones that really caught my kids' attention and they have grown to love is the life story of Squanto. Okay, Now, I am very familiar now with the life story of Squanto... ...because I've heard it, I don't know, 736 times, I think it is. But uh, So I know all about Squanto, but many of us, we know about the pilgrims... ...and the story of the Mayflower, and how 102 pilgrims came over from England... ...because they were persecuted, and they came for religious freedom... ...to establish a colony that, uh, that honored and worshipped Jesus. But what many of us don't know is that from the time they arrived in 1620 in November... ...it was just three months, and by three months' time they had lost 47 people to death and disease. There was only 102. So you start with 102 and then you lose 47 in the first three months. I don't know about you, would that feel mildly discouraging? My brother's dead, my uncle's dead, my my wife's dead, my kid's dead, and there's only a few of us left. That's the reality that they were experiencing. And it was shortly after this brutal winter in the middle of March that the pilgrims meet Squanto. Now Squanto was a unique individual, maybe you know this, and uh, please don't send me emails with history updates, it's on the CD, I know it's accurate, okay? And so so, uh, Squanto uh, shows up, and Squanto was brought up actually in this area, in uh, Plymouth area, the area where the pilgrims landed, and he was then captured by some Europeans, brought over to Europe as a slave, learned the English language, learned the European culture, and eventually became a follower of Christ in Europe. Submitted his life to Jesus, and then he comes back, frees himself, gets, works out a whole scenario where he comes back to. The New World to Plymouth, and then discovers that these pilgrims from Europe have come over. They don't know the people, they don't know the land, they don't know anything, and they're literally just dying. And so Squanto says, it's going to be my job to be your mediator, your mediator between uh, the, uh, the Native Americans and yourselves, and your mediator between the land and yourselves. I'm going to teach you how to operate here in the New World. And he does. He teaches them all types of things, how to hunt, how to uh, do all types of uh, home you know, preparations to prepare houses for the next week. Winter and all these different things, but the most important thing Squanto teaches the pilgrims is he teaches them how to farm specifically corn, right? And so the the pilgrims plant corn. Squanto has all these unique Native American strategies to plant corn that work in the New World. I know you came to learn all this, so I've only got another 40 or 50 minutes on Squanto, and then we'll go to something else. But but uh, Eventually, they, they reap a great harvest, and that's where we get Thanksgiving. Harvest time came in October, November, and, and they had this wonderful feast with their new friends, the, the Native Americans. And so, it's an incredible story of how one man can literally shape the nation. Because out of that small group of pilgrims came the seeds of our nation, yes? And, and out of that, that small group of pilgrims, they would have never made it had it not been for one individual who taught them how to learn the land. Go ahead and find a friend today, to your left or to your right. And just tell them learn the land. Learn the land. You gotta learn the land. This past year, big movie came out. Don't know if you saw it, called The Martian. Anybody see The Martian? The Martian, Martian, okay, people in the back, all right, cool. I don't know if Bridgeport saw The Martian, but uh, The Martian was a big movie. It was, uh, it was uh, starring Matt Damon. I liked it. I went to go see it in the movie theater. I, I do recommend it. I thought it was good. But it's about this astronaut who gets stranded on Mars, right? They, they land on Mars and they leave him behind accidentally thinking he's dead and he has to survive. He finds out that he only has four months worth of food and he's going to be there for, or five months, and he's going to be there for at least four years. And so he has to figure out a way to survive. And so he happens to be a botanist, an expert in agricultural strategies. And so he finds a potato, uses some human feces, right? That they had vacuum packed in their, in their pod that was left there and discovers that he can manipulate the different elements to get water and sunlight and everything he needs. And he uses the Martian red rocky soil to uh, produce a crop of potatoes and he keeps himself alive alive. Until he runs out of ketchup, then he kills himself. But I didn't mean to wreck the movie for you, but, but uh, no, he doesn't kill. But, but it's incredible how Matt Damon, in this role that he plays, is able to learn The land. He's got to learn the land. See, sowing and reaping, we we hear that phrase, sowing and reaping, and we immediately think agriculture, right? We immediately think farming. If you plant a particular seed, you will reap a particular seed. Now, this is very true. If you plant tomato seeds, you will reap tomatoes, right? This is how sowing and reaping works. And so you hear people say it all the time. Oh, you reap what you sow. And it is true, you do reap what you sow, but it's not fundamentally an agricultural principle. It is fundamentally an everything principle, okay? And because we live in a world where very few of us are surviving off of what we planted last year, right? Very few of us have that reality. We hear sowing and reaping and we think agriculture and we miss a much broader understanding of how the world operates, how the society around us operates, and most specifically how God operates, Okay, because sowing and reaping is an everything principle. It shows up all over in Scripture, all over. It talks about in Proverbs 22 how sowing and reaping applies to the actions of governments. It talks about in James chapter 3 how your relationships, oh, whole other sermon, are dictated by the process of sowing and reaping. In another passage of Scripture, Galatians 6, it talks about habits of holiness and how those habits of holiness will produce through the process of sowing and reaping different realities in your life. And so sowing and reaping really is an everything, everything principle. And so some of us here, you don't understand sowing and reaping so you don't realize where your problems come from. And you show up at church and you pray a prayer hoping that everything goes away not realizing that you've been sowing for so long that now you're reaping Just came here to encourage you. So some of us here are sowing comparison... You've been spending decades of your life comparing yourself to your brother, comparing yourself to your dad, comparing yourself to your coworker, not realizing that sowing comparison reaps insecurity. Some of us have been sowing lust, and you've been sowing lust in your secret moments alone, and you've been lusting over this person and lusting over that, and you're not realizing that that lust is reaping slavery in your life. Some of you are sowing laziness, and you're saying, well, I just don't want to get going. I don't want, I'd rather sit here. I'd rather eat a little more. I'd rather relax a little more. I'd rather do a little little less not realizing that your laziness is reaping lack some of us are sowing gossip and we've talking about this person and talking about that person not realizing that the gossip you've been sowing for years is reaping instability in all of your relationships and you can't seem to figure out why some of us are sowing selfishness. I'm thinking about me. I'm thinking about mine. I'm thinking about what's best for me. Not realizing that your selfishness compounds over years and months, weeks, decades even. And eventually it just reaps loneliness. Why well, I don't have anybody close in my life. Well, you've been sowing selfishness for so long that you're reaping what you've sown. In Genesis chapter 8, it says this about... Harvest. It says, as long as the earth remains, there will be planting and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. These rhythms, this sowing and reaping, it's going to always be. Ecclesiastes 3 1 says, for everything, everybody say everything. For everything, isn't that interesting? Everything, there is a season. A time for every activity under the sun. In other words, what he's saying is everything on planet earth must submit itself to this process or principle of sowing and reaping. So I wonder in your relationships, in your finances, in your time with God, in your personal disciplines, I wonder what you've been sowing. I wonder what you've been sowing. Now there is a a soil that is more challenging than Mars. There is a soil that is more challenging than Plymouth. And the scripture speaks of it frequently. It is the soil of the human heart. And we have to understand that this principle of sowing and reaping must be fully understood if we are to know who we are and who God is. Because God operates by this principle of sowing and reaping. And so we see that God creates the human race and he makes one man as a seed. And that one man is a representative for all men. And so this one man, the scripture says, Adam, which just simply means man or dirt in the original language, Adam is a seed of the human race. And when Adam rebels against God and chooses self-worship over God worship, the seed is corrupted in his soul so that when he has offspring, he passes on the corrupt seed. And when corrupt seed gets into soil, like the human heart, it ends up corrupting the soil in which it is planted. And so the human heart becomes distorted and the corruption spreads. And so humanity begins to experience things that we don't want and pretend like we don't have. And yet we all know it's there. This darkness, this corruption, this insecurity, this anger, this rage, this shame, this addiction, this fear, this pride. And so we see that the laws of sowing and reaping impact our lives. You're sitting in this room and you are impacted by a dad who never came home. You were impacted by a mom who was always drunk. Those weren't your sins, and yet those sins impacted your life because of the principle of sowing and reaping. They were sowing, and it was reaping a harvest of difficulty in their kids' lives. Is this microphone on? Am I doing okay? And so we live in a world, you look around us, and we live in a world and we see that sowing and reaping and sowing and reaping and sowing and reaping is causing tragic results all around us, Right? Little kids are getting sold as sex slaves on this planet. People are strapping bombs to themselves and they think it's a holy action. Organs from human bodies are being sold on a black market. There is crazy stuff. That this world is doing all the time and it's this process of sowing and reaping that has reaped incredible pain and suffering and struggle. And so we look around and some of us would shake our fist at God and say, why do you let bad things happen? And why do you enable this? And why do you do this? And he would say, why are you sowing those seeds? The good news, however, is that the laws of sowing and reaping work both ways, right? The laws of sowing and reaping work both ways. And the same principle that is destroying the human race is also the one that God uses to redeem the human race. This principle of sowing and reaping is the strategy of God to redeem you from your brokenness. Woo! Come on, try to stay with this idea. And so when God chose to heal the world, how did he do it? He sent a pure seed. Jesus the Son walks the planet as not the seed of Adam, but the seed of the Spirit. Don't you remember? The scripture says that Mary conceives a child, and yet she was never with a man because the Spirit put a holy seed, right? A holy seed in Mary. He lives a perfect life as a representative for the human race, and he dies a death he does not deserve on the cross. To remove the separation of sin between man and God so that all of our sins could be fully forever forgiven in the cross. And so God has now removed the barrier that kept people from him. And where does it leave humanity? With a soil in our hearts, oh you gotta get this, that is still corrupt, right? My heart still longs for these things that, that he doesn't, that I don't have. And, and how do I get myself right? And so what God does is, if you are here last week, you know we talked about Sabbath. And if you were a farmer, you would know, and you're not, so I'll just tell you. You would know that if soil is overworked, it becomes unproductive, right? And it can't grow anything. And so the only way to restore soil is to give it rest. And when land lays fallow, when land is rested, the nutrients come back and it becomes revived. In the same way on the cross, Jesus says, I will carry your sin so that you can carry my gift of righteousness. So that before God, you're not judged on how well you've done, but on how well I've done. And in that position of perfection, you can finally find rest. And once you find rest in your heart, your soil begins to be restored and the nutrients of your heart come back. You missed a good place to clap. That's okay, we'll get the next one. All the striving, all the comparing all the restlessness is solved through the cross of Jesus Christ. And so God's plan goes even farther. Come on, sowing and reaping. God's plan comes even farther. So he, what he says is now that your soil is being redeemed by the rest that you've received by accepting Christ as your uh, substitute. In that rest now, the soil gets restored so I can plant a holy seed, the seed of my Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of Jesus, into your heart. And when you say yes to Christ, your Spirit and God's Spirit become one. So now... His Holy Spirit is growing in your redeemed soil so that you can produce a harvest that is plentiful on the inside. You can experience inner life because the soil that it's growing in is a soil of forgiveness, of adoption, of peace, of holiness. And then God says, I know you need a guide. I know you need a squanto. You're in a new world, so i got to show you how this new world operates. And so my Spirit will abide with you as your guide to show you the rules Of a new world, to show you the rules of this new land. And so his plan for you is not that he does all of that and then you have a tiny little four by four garden where you have seven or eight tomatoes. That's not the plan. His plan for you is that He has done all this to redeem the soil of your heart. He has done all this to plant His Spirit in your heart so that you have a holy seed abiding in you. He has done all this so that you can produce a harvest far beyond comparison. I don't believe Jesus was kidding when He looked out at His church and said, greater things will you do because I go to the Father. Amen. So in 2 Corinthians... We see the Apostle Paul trying to get the attention of the church in Corinth and trying to teach them that there is more for them than what they have. I love this passage. We read it a few weeks ago. I love this passage in the message translation in chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians where he's just trying to get the Corinthian church to realize that God has so much more than what they've experienced. Look at what it says. It'll be on the screen. It says, Dear, dear Corinthians, I can't tell you how much I long for you to enter this wide open spacious life. We didn't fence you in. The smallness you feel comes from within you. Your lives aren't small, but you're living them in a small way. I'm speaking as plainly as I can and with great affection. Open up your lives. Live openly and expansively. God has something bigger for you. God has more for you. He has a big life. And we've spent four weeks now meditating on this truth. And we started with the fact, remember we started in Ephesians chapter one, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spirit Spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And we talked about the positional blessing, the paternal blessing, and the power blessing, how much God has given us, how much He's packed into our souls in Christ, right? And so, what we get out of all of that is this fundamental shift in the way you think about God. This is what I'm going after. This fundamental shift in the way you think about God, because somewhere along the line, through the brokenness of your own life or the disconnections the, dis, uh, of your own story, you say, well, why didn't that happen for me? And why didn't I get that job? And why were my parents like this? And, and what about this? And how come that didn't work out? And you start thinking in your mind that God is a taker. When this truth of his blessing proves that at his core, the very nature of God is not to be a taker, but to be a giver. And when you start to see God as a giver, things start to change. Everything starts to change. Wait a minute, God became my righteousness? Wait a minute, God removed sin from my life through the work of his son, not through my own deeds? Wait a minute, God has freely given me the Holy Spirit so I can be empowered to live free from the bondages of my own heart? If all of this is true and God truly is a giver, it changes the way everything looks. And so week two we looked at the fact that that should change the way I look. It should change the view of myself and my, my identity isn't any longer built on comparisons. Well, am I richer than the neighbor? Do I have a nicer car? Do I have nicer clothes? Do I look better? Do I have this or that? Am I more successful than my brother? Am I more successful than my dad? None of those things become my identity. Instead, my identity gets rooted in the fact that God loves me. And then out of his love, I begin to discover my own limits. And then from my own limits, I begin to discover my lane, the things that I am uniquely graced to do. And I start to learn my grace zone, right? And so I think about God differently, not a taker, but a giver. I think about myself differently through his love, his limits, and his lane. And then I start to think about work differently. And I no longer work, and this is what we covered last week at every location, I no longer work to prove that I'm worthy. Instead, I rest in Christ and then work from that place of acceptance and rest. And it changes the way everything else looks. And so, yes, this identity, this big life should change the way I look at my rhythms. It should change the way I look at God. It should change the way I look at myself. But it needs to fundamentally change the way that you and I look at our resources. And this is what Paul's getting to in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. He's getting to the fact that you've got to look at your resources differently. I heard one preacher use these different phrases that I'm going to use today. It was really helpful for me, so hopefully it's helpful for you. In verse 6, Paul starts to outline his concept of what it means to trust God with our resources. And look at it in verse 6 because he uses the principle of sowing and reaping. Check it out. He's talking about an offering that's going to be given to the church that's coming from the Corinthians, right? So they're giving. He says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. He's introducing a principle. He uses the word sparingly. And we know what that means. It means to hold back, right? It means to be cautious in our generosity. But then he says, whoever sows bountifully. And that word in the Greek is a little bit different. It literally means to give, don't miss this, on the basis of blessing. In other words, I have been blessed. And on that basis, I am now free to give. That's what, it, that's what bountifully means. I'm free to give because I have been given to. And so because I have been given to, I am now free to give. I've received grace, therefore I can give freely. And so the principle is this. I want to outline for you the principle. You are blessed in proportion to your generosity. Write that down. Write that down. You are blessed in proportion. Wow. You are blessed. Now this should shake you a little bit because yes God is sovereign we're not in, he's not in you know we're not in control of everything he's in control of everything and yet God has put a system in place by which you can impact the degree of blessing you experience And it's in proportion. That's what he means here. He says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly is also going to reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully is going to reap bountifully. You are blessed in proportion to your generosity. So you get to dictate to a large percentage the degree of blessing you'll experience. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, that should change the way we think about life a little bit. You know, City Church, you guys know this, has been around four and a half years. We started with about 15 or 20 people that had a real passion to see this region and all the regions across New England reach with the gospel. And God has done something special here. If you've not been around for very long, maybe you're not aware of just the whole journey we've been on, but it has been a special journey from God. It has been a journey of of powerful impact and many people meeting Christ. And we're grateful for that. But as we look at our church and what God is doing here, there are many reasons why God has seen fit to favor our community and to see it grow. But I am convinced that one of the main reasons God seems to continually bless our church is that from the very beginning the leaders of this church decided that we were going to be a giving church that we were going to be a generous church in fact the very first 11 percent of everything comes into our church we give away to other ministries and initiatives all over the world you don't realize this maybe you do and I don't talk about this a lot because it's not about us bragging on what we're doing it's about bragging on what God's doing but right now right now wells are being built All across South Asia, because our church is building them so that people can have clean water and survive and grow and flourish. Isn't that wonderful? Right now, you may not know this. There is an office for a church in Turkey, a country that is 99.9% Muslim. We pay for a church office month to month. We pay their rent every month so that a church can be established in the nation of Turkey and make impact in a place where very few are hearing the gospel. Right now, you may not know this. Two students are, are attending the Africa Theological Seminary right now because you and me are paying their tuition in full, because they have a vision to plant churches all across Africa. That's happening right now. I grabbed a picture. Can you throw that picture up there for me? Throw a picture. You don't know him, but his name is Rankon Marin, right? Now, Rankon is, is from India, and Rankon is a missionary to his, his people, and he is planning a church in India right now because you and I are helping cover his salary. This is happening. We have nine other indigenous missionaries that we're paying for every single month as a church because we're dedicated to seeing the gospel spread all over the world. And we're dedicated to giving and being generous and being generous and giving. When you give to City Church every week, we pass a bucket. You're not just paying for lights and paying for rent, you're paying to touch the world. And you don't realize that it's not just all over the world and over the seas. It's here too. Every month, every month in New Haven, we're buying uh, dinner for uh, women in a homeless shelter. Every month in Bridgeport, we're making a, a, a consistent contribution to the Bridgeport rescue mission to enable it to continue to move forward. Every single month, we're tutoring kids that because of their economic situation, haven't had the advantages that other kids have had. It's happening locally. It's happening globally. We're a part of impacting the world. We are. It's awesome. It's awesome. But it's important for you to know that every core leader here, every core leader at our church, we, we give at least 10, many of us give much more than that, percent of our, of our finances to this church to push the mission forward. And we believe the principle that you're blessed in proportion to your generosity. Now, you can fake it. You can say that it's not true. You can pretend like you believe it and not do it. And that's on you. That's for you to decide or not to decide. But I'm here to teach you. That this principle is just like seed time and harvest time, sowing and reaping. It's been around forever, and it's not going anywhere, and it applies to your resources. And so we see that there is a principle, but that's not enough. There has to be now a procedure. Take a look at the procedure in verse 7. Stay with me. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart. This is the procedure, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Let me outline for you the procedure by which God desires you and I to be generous people. You ready? Jot this down if you'd like. The procedure is this. Responsibility plus preparation plus faith. Responsibility plus preparation plus faith. Let me unpack this for you for a minute. It starts with this phrase, each one must give. Raise your hand if you're each one. Yeah, we're all each one. There's no one here that's not part of each one, right? Each one must give means everyone. Everyone must give, okay? That's what it says. And now you say, well, I don't want to give. Okay, We're not going to force you to give. We'll never force you to give. But here's what I know. And let me just be straight with you. God is a giver. And he doesn't make kids that are takers. And so the question is not do you have to give. The question is are you a child of God? Because if you've experienced the generosity of the Lord. Then there is something deep within you that longs to be generous in return. And yes, generosity is a muscle that we need to work. It's an understanding that we need to cultivate. But there should be something in me, if I'm truly a follower of Christ, that longs to be generous because my Father has been so generous to me. So it starts with responsibility. I am a giver. Go ahead and turn to the person next to you and just tell them that. I am a giver. Even if you're not. Start today. I am a giver. I am a giver. And then he says, each one must give. As he's decided in his heart. In other words, this is supposed to be a premeditated process. You're not supposed to just spontaneously do this. You're supposed to actually prepare to do this. And that's the second part of the procedure. It starts with responsibility. I am a giver. And then preparation. I've got to get ready to give. And what we urge people to do is to understand the law of the first. The law of the first says that if you, if you trust God first, then he will bless everything else. It's from Genesis to Revelation. We see this process. Now, it's one thing to say, okay, I paid my mortgage. I paid my electric bill. I bought my groceries. I got a little fun in. I did all these things. What do I have left? I'll give that to God. How much faith does that take? It takes zero faith. But how much faith does it take to say, I'm going to dedicate a particular percentage first and before I pay my mortgage and before I pay my electric bill and before I get my groceries and before I go out, I'm going to give. How much faith does that take? Well, that takes some faith. And that's what preparation is all about. Preparation is all about saying, I'm going to reorient my life around the fact that I trust God. And if I trust God, I will give and be generous to the work of God. And when I'm generous to the work of God, I trust that he will do the rest. And so it's responsibility, it's preparation. And then he talks about this idea. He says, not reluctantly or under compulsion, right? Reluctance is like, all right, I'll do it. Compulsion means obligation, right? Like, I guess I have to give. And what he's basically saying is, listen, if you're doing it that way, just keep it. You're doing it wrong. You have to give, not under obligation, but out of faith. Out of faith. In other words, how do I beat this concept of obligation? I believe that God is good. I believe that God is for me. Therefore, I give trusting him. Faith says I trust my father. And when I trust him, I can begin believing that he will provide for me. So this is the procedure, right? Responsibility, preparation, faith. Everybody doing okay so far? Because it gets better. Check it out. Verse 8 is the scripture that everybody likes to claim, but ignores verse 6 and 7. Verse eight says this, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Now that's a big life scripture, isn't it? Abound, abound, abound. God's promise is this. You understand the principle, you practice the procedure, and then God gives us a promise. And the promise is this, abundance, abundance, abundance. And some people squirm when they see this because they think abundance, no, no. Are you trying to preach that everybody's going to be a millionaire and and everybody's going to be this and that? And you've missed the whole point. You've actually moved away from the heart of God. Because the heart of God is abundance in all things. This means an abundance of joy. This means an abundance of peace. This means an abundance of rest. This means an abundance of faith. And it does mean that God gives you an abundance in your resources for a very particular unique purpose. And it's right there in the verse. It says that God will give you an abundance for every good work. In other words, that God wants you to do good works with the extra that he gives you. He gives you an abundance so that you can be more effective in accomplishing the work of Christ on the earth. And it's true that in our materialistic culture, we've taken our abundance and just made it all about us. Yes, God wants you to enjoy life, but he wants you to marry that enjoyment of his blessing with the understanding that we are in a spiritual war for the souls of people. And when those two things come together, it gives you a strategy that you can rest in Christ, but be militant in your generosity so that you can see the greatest impact in the days you have. That's what I'm talking about, Willis. So we have a principle that you're blessed in proportion to your generosity. We have a procedure, responsibility, preparation, and faith. And then we have a promise, and it's abundance. It's abundance. That's the promise. And this means that your life gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Now here's what I know. I know that if you want You can go out of this sermon today and say, oh, that was nice, and change nothing. You can cling to what you have. You can compare yourself to your neighbor. You can worry about the future. You can strive to try to beat some invisible person that you're trying to beat. Or you can pause. And it's my desire that in this moment, right here, right now, you pause. You can pause, and you can reflect. And you can say, hold on. Maybe Proverbs eleven twenty four really is true. This is what it says in the message. We started this series with this passage. That the world of the generous gets larger and larger. While the world of the stingy gets smaller and smaller. Maybe it's actually true. And maybe, look at me today. Maybe today is the day where you dare to trust God with everything. Maybe today is the day where you jump. And you say, you know what, I've been doing this Christian thing for a long time, but I have not been all in. And today is my day to jump and to trust a God who I can't see, who I sometimes don't feel, who seems far away at times. I am going to, by faith, jump off the cliff and believe in a God who will catch me every single time. Maybe right now, today is the the day where you walk away from that fear of lack. You know, you're always scared we're not going to have enough. You're scared you're going to have nothing. You know, in that passage of Scripture, it says that Paul says, I have nothing, yet I possess all things. He understood that even when I in my resources have nothing, I still have my Father who has everything, which means I still have everything. And so I'm not scared of having nothing. I'm not scared because I know he'll trust me. Maybe today's the day you walk away from your insecurity. Today's the day you walk away from that insecurity about who you are, that false identity that you've clung to. I believe in Jesus' name. Today's the day you walk away from unbelief. You walk away from the insecurity and the unbelief. I want to wrap this series up with one big idea. With one simple thought that's embodied in this passage, verse 6, 7, and 8. And which I believe can change the trajectory of your life. It's a simple thought, but it's a thought that has just been running around in my mind, in my spirit, as God changes me. You can write it down. The thought is this. God's plan to bless you. Requires that you learn to think like Him. His plan to bless you means that you have to start thinking differently about life. God's plan to bless you requires that you learn to think like He does, to think like Him. To abandon some things that come natural to your thought process. That's uncomfortable. Abandon some things that come natural to your way of thinking and embrace a principle. The principle of sowing and reaping. The understanding of the practice of this in my actual procedures of life. And then understanding that this will guarantee by his grace, in his mercy, in his time, and in his way, the promise of more than enough in Jesus' name. And you start to believe these things. Friends, we've taken four weeks and we've looked at a big life. We looked at your view of God from taker to giver. You've looked at your view of self from comparison to who I am in Christ. We looked at your view of work from striving to rest. And now we're looking at resources, right? From resources. And we're moving from this idea of lack to this understanding of abundance. And God's looking to do something in your life. He's looking to do something in your life and it's to change the way you think about this stuff. And today's an invitation, really. It's an invitation to think differently. It's an invitation to believe differently and to trust. I want to be straight with you. Our church, by God's grace, reaches hundreds of people every week. Every week, we have a few thousand that join us online every week. But every week in our church services, we have hundreds of hundreds of people that come at all of our different services through our different places that we meet and all that. And that's wonderful. And we're grateful for that. But the reality is that, uh, that we have a lot of growing to do. In 2015, this is exciting. In 2015, our church gave, okay, so in other words, you all gave to City Church over $1.3 million. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, I think that's wonderful, right? And so over $1.3 million was given to City Church by all the people that come and attend. And so that's, that's amazing. Last year before that, 2014, it was about 800 and something. The year before that, it was 500 and something. The year before that, it was 200 and something. The year before that, we didn't exist. And so it's been incredible how God has really, in just a short amount of time, had brought generous people. $1.3, almost $1.4 million came in. Now that's wonderful news. Here's the not so good news. That 78% of that $1.3 million, 78% came from 150 people. 78%. That means there's hundreds of hundreds of hundreds of people who are contributing such a small amount, and it's just 78%. And you might say, well, that's because they're rich. No, they're not. A couple of them are. But the vast majority of them are average middle class American people or lower class American people who are just generous. There's very few people that are in the upper echelons, giving. And we're grateful for those that do, but the reality is that 78% of the giving came from 150 people, 150 people. So here's what I think about. What if every person in our church got the bug? What, What if every person in our church said, you know what? I'm going to trust God. I'm going to give first. I'm going to give a percentage. I'm going to start at 10% of my income. And I'm going to give. We talked about tithing in the past, the principle of tithing and all that stuff. But I'm going to trust God, not as a law, but as as an act of faith. I'm going to trust God in my giving. And I'm going to grow my giving year after year. You know what, Justin? I'm going to trust God. I'm telling you, if we stopped pretending we were and just started doing it, we would have such a super abundance, friends, that we could plant as many churches as we could get ready for. Because the resources would be there. Oh yeah, okay. No no, you know you didn't get it. I am not even kidding. We could change New England in less than a decade. That's what could happen, church. It's your choice. You say oh, I'm just a little part. No, 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 you don't understand. This whole thing is made up of little parts. That's how it works. That's how it works. And abundance for every good work. So here's our challenge. And we've done this challenge before, and it's never failed. And we encourage you, please take it. Here's the challenge very simple take three months, 90 days, okay? 90 days, and increase your generosity increase your generosity. So I don't know how you do generosity. Maybe it's what's ever left at the end, I throw 5 bucks in the plate, or maybe it's we do prepare and we do set aside and we do make it first. I don't know what your situation is or how you do things, but here's the challenge. I challenge you to give first and I challenge you to give by percentage. Maybe that's 10% or maybe it's more, maybe it's less than that, but you choose to make a percentage and you give it before you pay anything else. Do that for 3 months. And if God has not abundantly blessed you and provided more than enough in that 3 months even though you're giving more money away now, If he has not done that, call our church offices and we will give you back all the money. Right? That's like a risk-free. It's like a good mattress, right? We'll give you back all the money. Why? Because we are so sure. So sure that supernaturally, hey, I got that raise. I wonder if that's connected to my generosity. Hey, God continued to flow, new opportunities. Wow, you know, this happened, that happened. This I had this massive bill, disappeared, and this changed. And things begin to move. And when you start to put the pieces together, you realize that your dad loves you, that he is a giver, and that all along he's just been waiting for you to trust him. So that's our challenge. I want to invite you to do it. And I give you a promise that we will, we will without any question, we will just, we'll just cut you a check. Three months. Three months. You have nothing to lose. I was thinking about FDR. You have no, no, no fear, but fear. I messed that one up. Fear itself. You got what I'm saying. I just want to encourage you today. I want to encourage you today that, that this big life, this big life really can grow to any degree that you will trust God. And I want to be a part of a church that just radically trusts God. For more information and resources, visit www.ourcitychurch.org.